All right. So on today's show, I've got Andy Davis on here. Very excited to have you on the show, Andy. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to do this. Awesome. So I know about all your great accomplishments and what you've been able to do in the ecosystem, but a lot of people on this show might not have heard of you. So if you don't mind, give us a bit about what Andy does, who you are, and what you're about. So again, thank you for having me. My name is Andy Davis. I am an early stage investor now, but I spent many years as a founder and spend my time very fortunately with black founders and black investors every single day, just helping progress our culture. And on the day-to-day, what that looks like is helping found black founders raise their rounds. So often investing myself, bringing other people in to invest, helping them with various aspects of their companies, such as hiring, product, um, customers, narrative messaging. And on the VC side of things, I help black people get get into venture capital and when they're in their progress in their careers and I am now like a phase of my life where I'm raising my own fund, the 10 out of 10 fund, which stems from a group of black founders and investors in Europe that I run and been running for seven years. So now when black people are starting funds as well, I spend a little bit of time there every week um, just helping us progress in that fund as well. Awesome. Now I want to make sure that we focus on the topic, but your background and history is pretty interesting as well. So if we could get a, a quick glimpse into sort of where Andy is from, like where were you born? Where were you raised? What was your upbringing like? Like how did you become sure. this, this person? <laughs> so um, <laughs> I don't really share too much about this stuff. I don't know that it, anyone should repeat my path or if it's a good path <laughs> to go down. But um, I'm from, I'm some half Indian, half Greek Cypriot. My mother's Indian, so I was raised by my mother and... Um, a black Australian woman, and we were born in born in the UK, raised in an area called Barkham and Dagenham. And Barkham and Dagenham is the beginning of Essex, so right at the end of East London. And we were the first set of black people there, right? And it's interesting how the area transformed. Barkham now is just full of the, the school I went, the school I went to, my little cousins go to now, and. I asked them recently, I was like, oh, how many black kids are in the school? And they were like, what? Everyone's black. And I was like, what? Everyone's black? <laughs> I was like, oh, what? Um, when we went there, I think it was just my friends and I, like, we were just nine of us or 13, 14 of us in the whole year group of almost 200 students who were black. So um, it turns out how our area has changed over the last um, 15 years or so. But born and raised there, I never went to university. Well, I, I spent some time at different universities never got a degree and I've never had a job. So I've just been doing startups my whole life and never anything that, I've just always got to solve a problem I've seen in front of me. So I don't think I'm particularly great at anything. I think one thing I'm okay at, which happens to be enough, is problem solving. Mm. And because I problem solve well enough, oftentimes uh, we get end up building things of value and just stay focused on value the whole time as well. Nice. And I mean, going into the the topic of today, which is, you know, listening to pitches specifically, you know, around people that are trying to either get investments or to convince others of their idea. You know, you have a great track record in history, especially on Instagram. I've seen the uh, the events that you host where you, you bring people on. But, you know, translating some of your experience and now going into the topic of listening to hundreds and hundreds of pitches, what are some of the things that got you into that in the first place? And then what are some of the things that make a good pitch versus a bad pitch? Let's kind of start the conversation there. 
Sure. So I guess what got me into it is doing when I was solve problems, I think in each world you have to learn how to speak the language. And in this world of startups, it became evident that a pitch deck or a um, presentation on your company was the um, was startup world's version of a business plan. Mm-hmm. Right. So yes, I initially started with a business plan back in 08 or so and for a few years used one until it got to about 2010, 11 or so, then switched to a deck. And I then became super familiar with decks, creating it myself and my businesses and helping others with their decks when they went to speak to investors as well. So I became super familiar with them and of course, super immersed in the startup ecosystem, running events myself where people come and pitch at these events. I just ended up, you're right, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of these decks now and have read all the decks of a lot of them, so I'm super immersed about it. All the decks of um, all these great companies that are out there as well who have their decks online or whose decks I can get access to. And it's a great way to storytell, just a great, great way. And it's a great way sometimes I say to people, imagine if someone said to me once, another family said to me, I said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm, I've got this problem I wanna solve. Um, he said, are you raising money? I said, no, and he said, you should pull it. He said, you should put the idea in the deck. He said, create an idea deck. And it just help, will help you just compartmentalize the idea and getting deep understanding as to like what is the different parts of someone to ask you about going to market, it's someone to ask you about product, it's someone to ask you about how it works, team, besides just like how, how you're gonna make money, you've already hand covered each of those in a deck itself. Um, so I spent so much time there and used decks successfully over the years to acquire customers, to, to get investment. And I'm using the deck now to raise a fund as well. So um, it never ends. It, for those watching, if you enter the startup land, your laptop will be full of decks and 20 versions of the same, 20 versions of the same company deck. That'll be yours. That's awesome. So, um, and what I've learned from, so what's what I've learned from um, viewing all these decks is um, when it comes to fundraising, 90% of it is down to narrative. So people go to their decks all the time and they go to get super great designers, which makes a difference if, you've got, if, you, if you get it right. right? And I, actually, I'd love to talk about design index, the importance of it versus not, right? And um, so I'll come to that. But I feel like people go to do their decks and some decks are super long, some decks just miss out information sometimes. Um, but, for, but what's most important is just the narrative. If you can get a super solid, a game-changing, I'm taking you on this dream with me narrative, right? And you're, you're, I'm, this is inevitably going to change the world, narrative, then the rest of it is just down to yourself and maybe a little bit of what you've done so far, right? Like, and narrative will convince anyone of anything, right? And that's because when, you, when it's early days, it's just about the story. Just tell me a great enough story that I can go on this journey with you on. And that's all, that's all I want to really hear in the early days, I think. And yes, there's small details around, around what's important in deck, such as traction, which is, customers and um, revenue and stuff um, engagement which is like how how much time people spend with your with your product or your service and how they use it team is really impressive the people behind it is always a critical piece but you get the narrative down if you can create this inevitability through storytelling then you have a much simpler time fundraising or securing customers with a deck yeah it's one of the most underappreciated skills 
which is storytelling. And if you really look at humanity, one of the things that has lasted throughout time, you know, empires rise and fall, but stories, whether it's religious stories yep. or anything like that, they stay for a long time. I, I don't understand what it is that makes us gravitate towards great stories and what it is that makes stories, you know, so compelling in a pitch deck such that people even invest money in you. But what do you think it is about the storytelling process or narrative creation that you mentioned that is so alluring and that actually convinces people to, to buy into what you're doing? It's the same thing that happens at Disney, right? The same thing that happens at Netflix today. When they're writing these incredible scripts, it always starts with the script, it always starts the story because... So I read a great book called Disney World and it was about the... Um, it was about a, an old CEO called Michael Eisenhower who was there for 19 years, right? And they, they dive deep into how they created great, great Disney movies and great Disney shows. And the importance of script and the story and how they changed certain parts of really famous Disney movies. And just to adjust the story slightly, just to make it more appealing to the audience, right? And more emotional and emotive for the audience. And I think that's what's important. When you, a great story has you on a journey and it makes you wish, you, you see yourself in that journey or on that journey. It makes you wish that, you had that part of the hero element to you as well, right? And I feel like that's what a great startup pitch does. You make, that's what I said, it makes you, you should make, the story should be so great, the investor should wish he or she is on that journey with you. Right? And the same thing with Disney movies, you're watching a great movie and you're just like, I wish that was me on the screen. I see myself in that character. And, or I'm on, or I relate to that, or I want that character to win. Mm. Right? Um, I recently saw King Richard um, the movie on Serena, Venus and Serena Williams and their yeah. father in the yeah. cinema, right? Incredible film. I think everyone should go watch it. A, a real great story and a true story, right? About how two young black women from Compton rose to prominence in tennis, right? And it was incredible. People in the cinema were super emotional during the film. And because it was also it's about how they set the narrative and how they made you go on the journey with. Venus and Serena Williams and their father and the family. And there's no spoilers here, right? But uh, and it's all a true story. But the storytelling piece is what made it super interesting because everyone's known the story. Everyone knows what's happened. Everyone's heard it. Most people have heard it. But if you put it in a great story um, and you make the audience want that person to win the story, and you see yourself there, you see your little sisters there, you see your cousins there, you see your partners there, your spouses, and um, it just ties you in. I think as founders, we have to do the same. Especially if you're talking to people who if you're pitching me and I'm from that industry, I should want to see that, that industry transform for the better and change for the better. So yeah. I should be excited by the story you're telling me about how it's going to change and that it's inevitable that your company is the one to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to touch on the elements of a good story because as you mentioned there, there are a few things like seeing yourself in the characters and, you know, there should be change involved, like what the status quo was. So yeah. what are some of the elements of, of storytelling in general and what are some of the elements you think are the most key to telling a compelling story versus not? I think when you start your story, you want to bring the pain. Right? I tell fans all the time, bring the pain. That problem slide, bring the pain. I should feel it. And be bold. Not only be bold with, with what your mission is, be bold with the problem. Really tell us. I say in healthcare, and it's, it's hard to hear sometimes, but not enough startup founders in healthcare say that this disease they're solving for or 
this healthcare issue is killing people. That's ultimately what the, they're ultimately going to solve that. I say, so you're solving death. And they go, oh. they go, are you solving death? Because if the problem leads to death somewhere, you're solving death, right? And they're not bold enough when it comes to that piece sometimes. Mm. But we do have those who are. That's why we've got great healthcare companies here as well. Right? Let's go back. I think the, to go back, when, when you're starting, when it comes to storytelling, the problem, bring the pain. And then talk, tell us about, so when we see great movies, again, we can see what the problem is in the movie. We can see that how things start and it isn't so great. Then we can see a few people who have go to, who have gone to try to fix it or try to make it work and they haven't been able to succeed. And then they and they fall. Those are your competitors. That, that is the market, market alternatives. So here's the big problem. Here's alternatives in the market who've tried to solve this problem, but they've just missed or not got it quite right. And this is why you exist. And this is where you come in, the hero in the story, your startup. And this is why you exist. And here's evidence, some early evidence about why you're the right one for it. You've got your, some, you've got some early traction or validation. And you've spoken to the people and the people love you. They want this startup and they, and they want, and you've got evidence as to how it's working for them already. With data that they want to keep using it as well. And then of course you, you, tell, you tell everyone how big an opportunity this is. And it's not just like this hero in this movie, like I'm not just here to save the town, I'm here to save the country, I'm here to save the world. And you see the best superhero movies, right? They're saving their town, but the, the superheroes flying all over the globe just to save one small town. But you get the picture that they're a superhero who can save the whole planet. But the whole thing, the whole movie is based in one small town somewhere, right? And the same thing as that founder, you say, here's the market, here's the size of the market, it's global, but here's where we're starting. This is the first market I'm saving, right? Then I'm going to go save. The, then I'm going to go save the world, and I think those parts. Are, and of course, you tell and you bring us in, and eventually tell us about you, like why you, why you're the one. Tell us about your powers. Where are these powers from? Like, what's your background? Your working background, your professional background, your startup background potentially. And then we're then we're with you. Then it's like this is what I need to get there. And if it's I need the people. If it's in the movie, I need the people to support me and to enable. And just to enable me to, to be able to save this save this town by just helping out as a community. And if it's investors, I need your resources and your capital to be able to grow this startup and to save this um, and to save the world. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. There's an interesting book called The Story Brand as well, and they talk about how every story has like a protagonist, an antagonist, a problem that they're solving, yep. trying to change the world. So creating that narrative is super important. And that's when you get people to buy into it because honestly, you need other people to help you achieve whatever it is you're trying to do. You can't do it alone. So yeah. being able to tell a good story gets other people on board and helps you to create a sort of movement that is bigger than just yourself. Would you say that's a fair assessment? 100%. So Stuart Butterfield, the founder of Slack, right? When he first started Slack, he said that he said, this is an email he sends out to all, he sent out to all the new employees when I first started. And he wrote it in a medium post. It's called, we don't sell saddles here. What that really means is, in the, I think, I believe it was Looney Tune cartoons. They used to have a, um, a bag of sand drop from the sky and it'll be by Acme, right? The company Acme and it, it drop and it'd be something that you put on horses to, to sit on top of horses to ride on top of them, right? And Acme's slogan was, we don't sell saddles, we sell horseback riding experiences, right? Mm. And it just took you on this experience. And Because you see it and you think, oh, they're selling, they're selling horse saddles. They said it all the time, we don't sell saddles, we sell horseback riding experiences. Mm. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, when you're going there, you think you go to one place to buy a saddle, that's true. 
when you go into Apple, you're going to buy a horseback riding experiences. Mm. And I guess you're more excited about that. You, you see yourself, you see yourself there already. Mm. Like when you when hey, you walk into other store, you're just thinking about <laughs> thinking about buying saddles. Hey, you're already envisioning your horse, you're already envisioning yourself on it. They're taking mm. you on the journey before you've got it done already. So mm. storytelling is super important at every aspect of a company when you're doing a pitch, when you're communicating with customers, and when you're talking to your team members as well at every aspect. And I think that's a good example of it. Yeah, that's a great example. And there's something else that I've thought of as well, which I've commonly heard, which is that people buy into emotion first and then they try and justify with logic afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Talk me through your experience with that. Is that true? Is that not? So it's true. I think there's several elements to it, right? There's um, a lot of brands build what we call FOMO, right? This is fear of missing out, right? And I say brands, it's not just that entrepreneurs do it, but great companies. There's this, and if fund managers, right, like ourselves will do it, there's this fear of missing out and you make people feel like it's super, like, oh my gosh, I have to get in. Because if I don't get in, I'm going to miss out and everyone else will be in and I won't be with them. And there'll be a great opportunity and they may be looking at me, laughing at me, or they may look at me like, who's the clown who missed out on this? <laughs> and then emotionally you buy. And the same thing with all products out there in the world, you buy it. And then afterwards you're like, sometimes hopefully it's logical. Other times it's illogical, but the emotion drags you in. It's, and emotion sometimes is happiness, it's excitement, it's fear. Mm. When I say the fear of mistake, that's another mission. So that FOMO drives you in and then you're in and then you're like, oh. <laughs> Same as why a lot of people go on holidays, a lot of people are, that this FOMO, this fear of mistake, and it's be there. They come back and they're like, I spent all this money. It's mm. like, okay. <laughs> so then their logic kicks in a little bit. And other times it's, you go because other people are doing it and you go and you're really excited about it. You're like, that was a great experience. All because other people are doing it. Then again, this fear of mistake, this emotion. Or some judging which is just, this excitement and nostalgia. So right now in time, where are we, 2022? Over the last few years, we've seen a lot of companies re-release old products, right? Mm. Um, and people have gone and bought them just, just because of nostalgia. Also because I, in, my, in someone's opinion, maybe mine, maybe not, I would say, what are they, we need a new, the new generation to create new things that are really interesting because I was just our generation, we released what we created, created many years ago, right? But I'm sure they're gonna come. So, um, and they're gonna do interesting stuff in the Web3 world as well. So. I think there's excitement and uh, look, we see crypto. Crypto is a fine example. So many people have crypto just because there's a fear of missing out. Yeah. They, a lot of people don't understand it. They're just driven by this emotion that makes them buy it, that makes them engage, that makes them tell their friends about it, that makes them excited to be, just to be involved, even though they don't know what it is. And so logic, logic does come second. <laughs> like almost every single time and emotion drives a lot of decisions. Yeah, we often like to think of ourselves as logical beings, but the reality yeah. around is that no, we're very emotional, right? We're very emotional, and even even I'll, I'll be honest, even myself, I think um, I, I, I maybe I frame it or position it as motivation, right? Where I talk to people like yourself and others who are doing things and moving things forward and creating great opportunities opportunities in the future, and I'm like, oh, I need to get I need to get my stuff, I need to, I need to, get, I need to get to work, right? So. Is that, um, is, that lo- is that logic at that moment in time? Or is that this emotion driven by excitement? That like what you're doing, I feel motivated, I feel amped, I feel pumped. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so we feel we're logical beings. Uh, we, ex- we, we explain it and just fact ourselves logically, but actually we're just emotional beings. Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, I wanted to change tack into a bit of the, the negatives or the common mistakes that you've seen people make whenever they're trying to tell a story or a narrative of some sort? Are there any kind of two or three themes you see that come up all the time? So firstly, I don't think people think of enough about narrative. 
Um, they don't think, and I'll talk to you what happens when they do think about it, but first they don't think enough about it. They So what I do before I create a deck, right? My house makes me do it. I walk around the living room, I've got my phone out, I've got a voice recorder out. And all I'm doing is, I was asked, what is the most compelling story I can tell? And I do that. I forget the traditional structures of what anything's meant to be. So anyone see my deck knows that <laughs> whatever the structure is meant to be of a traditional deck, I just skip it. I don't do it. I should do it. I go to edit in afterwards and it's needed. But I literally go, what's the most compelling story? What's going to make every, every single time I say something, you're going to be like, wow. You'll be so excited to hear it. I'll take on this journey. Here's the problem. This is how, this is how we're solving it. And this is how we're going to save this industry. So I think not enough people think about narrative. And I think they should start with narrative, actually. Because the other pieces, you've definitely got them. If there's anything you're going to be pitching about or putting into a deck or something, you've got those pieces already. So start with narrative and then go and include those pieces. Add in team, add in market, add in business model. And just when you go to add them in, you'll find a place for them to go in the story. 100%, you always will. I think, um, so I think a big mistake is not starting with narrative. A lot of people don't do it, but a lot of people don't start with it because you've got to add in afterwards. And the narrative just sounds, sometimes it just, the, the pitch sounds a bit forced because it's, you're struggling to get excited by it and you don't know why. And we found out, uh, we said several times, the best pictures are good, great storytellers. Um, mistakes, common mistakes I see people make with narrative is, I guess, I guess so not starting with it is, is the biggest one, admittedly. But I think second to that is, find there's not bringing the pain, as I said before, when it comes to the problem. On the solution, it's not diving deep enough. Mm. People, I say all the time, all I want to hear, I don't even mind sometimes with deck, we say in startup land, decks are meant to be 10 pages or so, whatever it is. I'm not trying to break any, oh, I'm a problem wall breaker, but I wouldn't mind a four or five page deck that just covers engagement, that dives deep on what users or customers are actually doing. There's mm. this misconception that because you're, you're telling the story, has, everything has to be large. Again, you watch the movies, all the heroes are saving their town, their local town, their local town, they're not even saving a bigger town, they're saving their local town. No matter what, what was this is just in the local time, right? So, um, so I said to say that people believe that oh, it has to be like this big thing. I've got all these users globally or whatever it is. No, you can dive really deep and just talk to the first 10 or 100 customers who you've got and just tell us about their, just tell us about their experience with your solution and how often they're doing it and why and what more they want and why it's not working for them as well. Talk to that side, I think. In their people's stories, they don't want, people don't like covering the negatives. Mm. But if you can say, so here are our users, and this is what the profiles, profile is of the users who, who are actually using this thing, right? And then in your appendix, you can say, actually, we know who isn't using it. We know who it isn't good for. So now we know who to better target to bring down our customer acquisition cost. These are things that make sense. But there's a fear of, and, and even when it comes to competition, I say it all the time, people, People, I see, I see often see people miss out certain competitors. And it's like, sometimes really bad because they're really big and you're like, well, where's Slack, <laughs> for example? Where's this other big company, right? Um, and they miss them out. And as, so someone pitched to me who's doing a BYP competitor almost, right? And BYP is Black Young Professionals. It's a network for Black professionals, Black, you say Black Young Professionals to um, find jobs and a community for them to um, network with one another and support one another. 
So people people pitch the exact same business and miss out. And Burpee is the most well-known one. Biggest, we can say it's the biggest, but like, we'll see how it goes. Um, hopeful it is. But when they miss out, I'm like, why are you missing out? What about BYP? Oh, yeah, they're relevant, but I think these other ones are this, is that. And I think there's this fear of, com- of competing a little bit or being compared to. But what they actually should do, narrative again, what I used to do is I say, here's, who the mar- here's who's in the market um, elsewhere. So yes, it's a competition, and this is, what, this is what they aren't doing great. But here's in the market elsewhere in the US, in Europe. And, and he- I use them as a validation. I'm like, here's the validation for this thing working. This market is big enough for two or three of us. And there's, some, there's two other players as well who've raised, who've raised venture capital and or have solved the problem for a lot of customers. And all of a sudden, you just switch it from, oh, here's our competition, who's big and scary and going to take the market to, here's the validation as to why what we're doing um, can work in this market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was thinking about the fact that you mentioned sometimes there is space for two or three, and it's not always the first that wins. I think, you know, MySpace was there much earlier than like yep. Facebook and Facebook came and overtook it. And even now Facebook seems to be going on a bit of a dwindle. I don't know anyone that's on Facebook now. Everyone's on like Instagram, TikTok, you know? Yeah. So things change all the time. Um, and so I actually wanted to touch on that, that note a little bit. So in terms of changing your story, everyone's story yep. changes, right? Your personal story will change, new experiences, your company story will change. Maybe you learn something about your customers that you didn't know before. How do yep. you navigate those changes in a story without losing the overall narrative so that it does still sound cohesive. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So that's a great question, right? I think you have to create bridges, right? And and explain them. So when I talk about so so when I tell when I, I do some talks and stuff and I um introduce myself, I can always start with 10x10. I can always say we wrote this community seven years ago of black founders in the UK and the community of all the black VCs across Europe. But I don't do it then. Because then at the end I say, oh, and I'm setting up a fund, 10 10 fund. And all of a sudden there's this like, oh yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, those, two, those two things, those two things sound connected, right? <laughs> but, um, and you can assume they are. But actually, as, instead I tell it as, oh, I'm setting up a fund called the 10 10 fund, which stems from a group that I set up seven years ago called 10 10 with the black founders and investors across Europe. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, that makes sense. No questions. So I feel like you have to create bridges from different parts of your life or different stories to, to the mountain you're climbing now. And, pe- and then people can best understand that, right? And you haven't got to do it in all of them. You can just, that's why the, the seven years thing comes last. It, it, it comes last, but the thing I'm doing now comes just before it. So even the thing I'm doing most presently isn't the last thing that you hear, which it should be in, in, in any sort of, in any, in any sort of chronological order. Actually, I do it then, and then I bridge, I bridge it with the thing that came first. And all of a sudden, tell me about this two parts of my life, and it all, it all makes sense. I thought we can, you can do that when you're storytelling, just about creating bridges between, between that moments or movements that you've been on. I love that. that. That's a really good piece of advice because it's practical and it's relevant as well. Create those bridges to make the story compelling and have those other nuances reinforce the overall narrative. Um, I think that's probably the, the key takeaway there as well. Um, you know, in, in terms of, I mean, we're coming towards the end of the episode, but I want to make sure that, you know, we, we give you your, your due diligence and your roses while, you know, you're still here with us. But, you know, you've done a lot for the community in terms of being on Instagram, you know, doing your, your, your outreach in the community and all those types of things. Are there any stories 
that you think need to be surfaced that aren't necessarily coming to the surface, whether that is individuals or of specific companies? Are there stories that we are just generally overlooking that you see time and time again coming out or that you wish were, was, were more prominent out there than, than currently is in, in this sort of general ethos right now? That's a great question. And there's, in our community, our culture, there's so much great work that gets done that's very, very quiet, right? And so it's so interesting. And again, so we'll do the story thing, right, where there's sometimes a negative, but then um, you, you say good day and it's very positive. So when it comes to Black VCs, right, yeah, they've got great jobs and um, pays well and they're in great positions. There's so many Black founders out there who are like, oh, the Black VCs aren't investing us, they aren't supporting us, aren't this, aren't that. That's a problem here, right? A potential problem. But actually, they're doing so many things you don't hear about, right? So to bring to the surface, even myself, a bunch of Black VCs, every month, we, um, something I started doing two years ago, we just take some Black female founders, very privately and quietly, no one knows about it, and we just have meetings with them every single month. Is it mentoring? Is it coaching? Is it just helping them prepare for the next rounds? We, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever they need, we just sit down with them every single month. And like a board, we're just there to support them personally and their journeys. And we just go on a journey with them. And I do that with several Black female VCs, several. And so many Black female founders who we hear raise and stuff. There's so much things that happen behind the scenes that no one has about. So when other people say, oh, what are the VCs doing? They didn't think you haven't heard of them. When you do hear the companies who inspire you to go and start your company or inspire you to go and pitch to certain investors, that's because those, those people have had some form of impact. They haven't done all the work. The founders are, the founders and the credit school theirs, but they've helped and they've played a part in that. And there's so many people, I feel like, there's people we know, right? The great ones, the um, Yvonne Bajellas of the world, right? For example, right? Um, I think mean, there's quieter ones like Ella, Ella Wells, Bonner. So even the group of Black VCs, I think, he has had set up and um, with doing things. But because Ella got us to take a picture and Ella posted about it on Twitter a few years ago, that's when it came to light. And then I think, I think things changed, right? A very quiet person, Ella. Um, doesn't, not really on socials, not any loud way, not really knows she's an investor. Um, a quiet woman who just does the work. And there are so many more like that, right? And I think, um, I mean, there's so many more who, Dele, Akinyemi at MMC Ventures, he spent so, I've got a few black people at MMC, wonder why? He's so proactive about making sure black people get interviewed there and he's helping prepare them and he's then putting them forward for other funds if they don't get a role there as well, right? No noise, no one hears about it, right? We've got so many, so many heroes, heroes of mine, heroes of the wide system who are doing the work quietly and yes, we can love all the people who people know and, um, I may fall into that bracket as well. But there's so much work that people don't hear of that should be rewarded. And on the founder side, oh my gosh, on the founder side, right, there's, <laughs> we've got so many great founders who are just quietly, with our head down, just doing the work, building game industry, life-changing organizations. Um, and they're doing it very proudly. I think we've seen evidence of the brothers, the Marshmallow brothers, who started this insurance company and it's now worth over a billion dollars. and they're quiet guys. No one can find them or see them anywhere, really, just doing the work. And you've got the um, the ones coming up who are also who are also working. I think about the um, these twins, um, Kenny and Tay. Kenny runs Home Hero, and Tay runs Contingent. 
and they're just crushing it, but they're very quiet and they won't hear the companies unless you're a customer or an investor. Right. So um a lot of praise, a lot of praise out there for the for these folks. And um and I want to say separate praise for last year, 2021. I said it throughout the whole year, and I'll keep saying that I was so proud it was the, it was the year the black female founder. Mm. Black female founders when they really crushed the game when they really not just about raised a lot of money, they really put their really gave themselves the opportunity, really created opportunities for themselves mm. and went to solve problems for a lot of customers. And they had an incredible year that I'm hoping black male founders can follow and follow in their footprints this year. Mm. Right. And I think in our culture, um, women, women have always led the way anyway. And that's something we can be proud to do and proud to support and always put them first and know that if they win, we can win as well. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I think that's probably a great note for us to end the, the podcast on, but you're right. I think of so many examples in terms of untold stories and hopefully we can illuminate some of those on this podcast, but in everything you think of, there's like, everyone thinks of Nelson Mandela, but there's hundreds of thousands of people that had their individual unique stories to help, you know, South Africa get free for every, you know, uh, Robert F. Smith in the U S or whatever it is, there's thousands of people that had their individual stories that played a role in that. So I think perhaps we just need to do a better job of highlighting some of those stories or celebrating people that don't usually get celebrated because they don't talk about yeah. their stories on their own. Right. So I, yeah. I think we will be conscious about doing that, but Hey, how can people find you? How can they reach out to you if they ever want to get in touch with uh, the famous Mr. Andy Davis? <laughs> I don't know about the famous piece, but um, I'm probably the most DMable person on the whole internet. So just DM me anyway. I'm at uh, Mr. Andy Davis on um, Insta, as Instagram, on Twitter, on Snapchat. Um, email is accessible as well. I can share my email, um, which is andygidavis at gmail.com. Um, I'm just super accessible. I think um, anything you need, you're a black founder or black investor, or you want to become a founder or want to become an investor, I'm more than happy to make time to um, help support you on that journey, or at least point you in the right direction um, the best I can. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show, Andy. Thank you for having me. Love this.